This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly, a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're international relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app week after week. We're decoding global politics so you don't have to. We are the Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. We are coming at you Wednesday, September 25th. Uh, my name is Steve Pally, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How's it going, Sooms? It's going all right. How are you, Steve? Doing all right. Recovering from a, a, a little bout of uh, LASIK surgery last week, so I can see you in all of your glory, which is real nice. I, I am resplendent with glory. Um, yeah. Should we get into it? Let's get into it, man. What's going on this week? So this week we are going to be talking about climate change. Uh, as was widely reported in press outlets around the world, uh, there were massive strikes. Millions of people took to the streets in more than 150 countries, including Antarctica, which technically not a country. Uh, <laughs> and the, the strikes are notable for many reasons, not just because of the size and the geographic spread of them, but because of the demographics that, that it crossed. There were many, many children, and I, I mean that in the sense that these were kids that should have been in school, lots of pensioners, retired folks, folks that you generally don't see in the streets protesting were out all over the world to call attention to climate change and more importantly, to call for political action to help stem the tide of climate change and its effect all over the world. That's right. And, and uh, these climate protests occurred, I guess, on Friday, um, September 20th, right, last week. And in fact, uh, my coworkers uh, walked out and participated in a uh, climate change march in um, Mountain View in California. Um, I'm in Los Angeles. I work remotely, but, um, you know, I walked out of the house <laughs> as well. I walked off the job yeah, uh, for an hour or two. There. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh. in solidarity. Oh, mm -hmm. good. Wait, but you didn't join a protest. You just walked off the job. Yeah, no, I just walked off the job. And, and <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, but so, uh, I, I could have gone downtown, but that would have entailed driving, which seemed, well, right. which would have which would have contributed to the thing you were, you, were hacked, you were protesting. Exactly. So I just walked around the block. Right, but this thing about climate change, there's lots of angles to take on this, and we're going to cover a lot of them. But the main one, since we're international relations folks, 
is to talk about what this means politically, what this means for international politics, what this means for different uh, different countries within their domestic politics. That's right. And and the venue for this has been uh, this week and, and prior to this week has been the United Nations, right? Um, it's been uh, Climate Week at the United Nations. And uh, we heard in our cold open, um, Swedish activist, she's 16 years old, Greta Thunberg, um, who actually sailed to New York to address the UN Climate Change Summit. Uh, she did not uh, use fossil fuels to do it. She sailed from, I guess, Sweden, right? And it took two weeks. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Greta Thunberg has become an international, the international face of climate change, replacing uh, Al Gore, Mm-hmm. Uh, Nobel Prize and Academy Award winning former Vice President Al Gore of Inconvenient Truth and the less popular sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of this leads us to our questions when it comes to climate change and international politics. Climate change is not like a war in that it is, this is by scientific estimates, this is a truly global problem. So here are some questions that it raises for international relations. How are countries going to handle a problem that is truly global? I yeah. mean, what, what are they going to do about a problem that overwhelms how national and international political responses have historically dealt with big problems? Right. Um, and, uh, and hold on, just one more. And what happens if the problems and the consequence of that problem move faster than, than politics, than political mechanisms can actually handle? So um, actually, human beings and, and countries have cooperated internationally to solve big environmental problems before. You may remember, like I remember growing up, um, the, the issue with aerosols, right? We banned CFCs, which were punching a hole in the ozone layer. You remember that? Yeah. Um, and like, that actually worked. That hole closed, and we no longer use that type of aerosol. Um, nor do we use it, uh, some type of Freon, I guess, in fridges. Um, I forget exactly what it is, but it was like a specific class of chemicals that basically every major country on earth just wiped off the market. Um, and we did it pretty fast and pretty effectively. Um, why can't we just do that again? I mean, seems pretty straightforward, right? So the long and the short of this is that the problem is, uh, well, the things that you were talking about don't affect how people eat or how they move around. Right. Movement, movement and diet are, are, base, are not only important parts of, of just being alive, they are very big parts of what, if you think about a fundamental level, uh, access to better food, the ability to, to move at your own uh, at your own desire. These are big parts of modern advances across the world. And what we're talking about is something that affects those things uh, in a very direct way. Yeah, at a fundamental level, right? right. Um, and when you boil down modern civilization, right, um, the way that we have grown up ourselves and are basically accustomed to living, uh, the difference between us and Imperial Rome or Imperial Rome and hunter gatherers is for every one of those steps that I described, uh, it involves a tenfold jump in per capita energy usage, right? So we use basically a hundred times more energy on a per capita basis now than we did as hunter gatherers or hunter gatherer tribes do now in places like the Amazon basin. 
So what you're, what you're saying is that a, much of uh, human advancement from the days of cavemen has been driven by our energy consumption. Correct. Yeah. And within the last century, like all of this energy has come out of the ground in the form of basically coal or oil and now natural gas. So fossil right. fuels. Um, it is uh, by far um, the easiest to use, cheapest, and uh, I guess most expedient way to boost energy consumption on a per capita basis. All of our global infrastructure uses it, um, starting with however many hundreds of thousands or millions of gas stations in the United States, right? Um, there, there's a gas station basically on every major corner in every city in the US, um, including where we live in Los Angeles. And that's just a reflection of, of really um, how things have gone for the past 150 years, right? Right, so uh, the rate at which nations and our species as a whole has advanced is incredible in the last 300 years, but especially the last 150 years. That's right. So the United States has made this leap, um, you know, after England did it first uh, during the Industrial Revolution. We had our own Industrial Revolution. And now billions of people in China and India are making the leap too. They're making the leap to increasing their energy usage, uh, to eating more meat, um, which is a form of energy usage, actually, uh, industrial agriculture, and uh, it, in terms of transportation as well. Um, so more and more people are getting richer and wealthier and leading better lives. They're developing economically, but they're doing it in such a way that we're burning more and more carbon into the air. But so then, Steve, you know, I asked the question of basically, why is this a global problem? Well, why does... Indian economic development or Chinese economic development, why does that affect, what is the global impact of these things? How does it affect the world? All right. Well, the way Thunberg framed this is that we have a certain carbon budget, right? Um, whereby if we want to avoid a certain amount of warming, so if we want to cap the amount of global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above the sort of pre-industrial average, we've already warmed about one degree and we see the kinds of impacts that it's had in terms of extreme weather and drought and sea level rise, stuff like that, pretty, pretty disastrous, right? If we wanna cap it at 1.5 degrees, so an additional 50% over where we are now, by her lights, uh, we have, I think, less than 10 years in order to basically bend this carbon usage downward in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. If we're not able to do that, then we're into the realm of two degrees, 2.5, three degrees, where the consequences start becoming much, much more dire. Basically what you're getting at is we dig stuff up out of the ground, we burn it in various ways. This creates carbon, carbon then changes the weather. Uh, so for example, right now, carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas uh, is at its highest level, scientists say, in 800,000 years. What this then means is that there are changes when there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, this leads to massive weather changes. So stuff's that, stuff like floods that used to happen once every 100 years start happening 50 years or 20 years or on the regular. Uh, there was an event last year where 50 inches of rain, 50 inches of rain fell in Hawaii in a day. Yeah, four feet. What did, 
<laughs> four feet water. Just over, just over four feet fell in Hawaii in a day. Yeah, more personally, you know, it hit 119 degrees uh, last summer in Sherman Oaks, where I live, and our power went out for like probably 72 hours. And we have small children. That was not great, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, but, you know, that is a, a survivable thing. What we're talking about in lots of other places is not, oh, God, you know, it's we now have the climate of a place that is 600 miles south of us. It's that places like, okay, so in China, big cities that have industrialized like Guangzhou and Shanghai are now vulnerable to flooding. These are, these are cities of millions and millions of people. Also in China, the industrial heartland is running out of water. That could affect half a billion people. There's, listen to this, in the last 25 years, according to, what's his name? According to Joshua Busby, uh, a scholar at the University of Texas, China has lost 28,000 rivers in the last 25 years. Like they just dried up and are gone? That's what Busby says. Right. Um, and this is not just a China and U.S. thing. Those are, those are big countries that might be able to handle some of this stuff. But in countries that are smaller, like in Central America, this means, uh, this means massive changes to agricultural-based economies where people can no longer feed themselves. Yeah. In countries that are very populated, but don't have, that are not as wealthy as, say, the China, uh, the China, as the U.S. or China, like, say, Bangladesh, Bangladesh is large, Bangladeshis largely live on fresh water. Uh, when the saltwater sea levels rise and start pushing into fresh water, this is going to change the composition of their fresh water. It'll affect agriculture as well as, uh, as, well as their ability to feed themselves. Yeah, it makes it pretty tough to uh, grow rice in particular when uh, yeah. you know, your ground is basically uh, too salty. Brackish, I think. Brackish. Right. Uh, so what we're talking about is stuff gets burned, goes in the air, changes the weather, uh, things get hotter, a sea levels rise. This then changes. This then changes how people live. And if people are living in places where they can no longer feed themselves, if they change, if they can't survive, to the, even if it's just surviving to the level they're accustomed to, what are they going to do, Steve? Uh, they are going to up stakes and they are going to move and they're not going to do it in a nice way because if they don't do it, they're going to die, right? So for us to try to hold the borders against, let's say, tens of millions um, of starving people, uh, we're not going to be able to do it. Uh, the Europeans are not going to be able to do it. The Indians are not going to be able to do it. Uh, and this could usher in a new age of, frankly, uh, global anarchy and chaos. Uh, in a way that we haven't seen for hundreds or thousands of years. Right. They can be serious. And it's not entirely clear that, uh, that leaders in big countries are taking this entirely uh, as seriously as Greta Thunberg would like them to. So, for example, last week, a news report came out that here in the U.S., the Trump administration froze foreign aid that was intended to ease the impact of climate change in Guatemala uh, despite evidence from its own agencies that climate change is a driving factor in Central American migration. Instead, what the White House wants to do is focus on law enforcement measures. So to recap that story, the government, agencies within the American government say that climate 
changes driving Central American migration. There was money for dealing with this, or at least helping to mitigate it. The Trump administration stopped, they froze that aid and decided to and then f- instead focus on what to deal on how to deal with migrants when they actually got to the U.S. instead of addressing climate change. This is this is one of those things that the U.S. is kind of is going. It's not taking entirely seriously at the politically elected level. Yeah. And, and I mean, setting aside the Trump administration's retrograde tendencies and sort of the, like the weird culture war stuff that has stopped the U.S. from participating fully in the Paris Accords and things like this, um, I see all of that as kind of more short-term distraction. Um, even within the U.S., even within the Republican Party, um, there has been actually like measurable and, and growing um, support for climate action because people on an individual individual basis um, have been affected by extreme weather and climate change and they understand that something needs to be done even within the Republican Party Republicans are, are starting to acknowledge that human beings are responsible um, for climate change um, so you know, I think we're going to get back to participating in global measures to confront the problem. But let's make this a little bit more concrete. When Thunberg says we need to adhere to this carbon budget, we need to not burn that additional 350 uh, gigatons of carbon currently in the ground to hold the line at 1.5 degrees of warming. What does that mean economically? I'll tell you what it means. It means gas at like five or six dollars a gallon in the United States starting now. It means meat, burgers at like, uh, I don't know, two or three times the cost of what we currently buy them at. And my question for you is, does that sound like a winning political program? (laughs) Not so much, right? Okay, when you ask the question of like, what do we do when there's massive climate migration uh, into the United States? Yeah, that sounds like a winning, that sounds like a good winning political program to preempt that sort of stuff, right? To try and start charging more for things like meat and gas so that people will consume less and it'll decrease carbon footprints, which will then help stem the tide of climate change. But this can then lead to less climate migration, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that sounds like a winning thing. No, it doesn't because you're asking people to go backwards. You're asking people to basically decrease their standard of living in an extremely serious way. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's an easy sell. I'm not even saying it's a possible sell. What I am saying is- I do, I do not think it's a possible sell. I, what I'm saying is, if we're really talking about how you're going to take this stuff seriously, it is a historical consideration of, called preemptive action. If you think something bad is going to happen, how do you preempt it? This has, been, this has been a part of studying wars for centuries. Well, why would you not also take the idea of preemption and apply it to something like climate change? I'll tell you why. So this is actually a really good analogy to draw, and I'm glad you brought it up, right? Um, the kinds of changes we're talking about uh, would amount to basically nationalizing the United States' economy. And the only time we've ever, we've ever really done this was during World War II, or, or World War I for that matter. Uh, where we nationalized the economy and implemented uh, national rationing on things like fuel and butter and meat. We actually did this in rubber. Um, And uh, 
you know, we filled the factories with people and required people to work certain hours. I'm like, uh, this is the type of thing that we're talking about when we're talking about actually limiting climate change uh, preemptively. Um, the thing is, during World War II, it was pretty clear who the enemy was. It was Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, right? We were stop it, trying to stop them from taking over the, their parts of the world and maybe the world in general. Um, so everybody got with the program. Uh, when it comes to climate change, the call is coming from inside the house, right? Us, we're doing it. We're the enemy. And like, we're the enemy because we're living the way that we've always lived. You and I, uh, the way that we grew up. Um, half of the carbon in the atmosphere currently uh, has been burned in the last 30 years. Um, and you and I, uh, you know, are almost 40 years old. So we are personally responsible for a lot of this. You didn't need to put my age out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll edit that out in post. But <laughs> the point being, it's, it's like you're asking people to in, implicate themselves first of all, and secondly, take extremely major steps backwards in their standards of living. Uh, and you're asking them to vote to do this. I don't disagree with any of the things you said, but I think a, an important part of the political analysis of this thing is where is public opinion? We started off the show talking about young folks and old taking to the streets to raise awareness on these things. Well, here's some things that I know. Old folks vote. In America, old folks vote. That's number one. Number two, young folks in this country and across the world are ardent, ardent believers that this climate change is the pressing issue. This is the pressing issue of our times. And polls in the U.S. show that belief in climate change has been growing, all of which is to say Yes, I think everything that we're talking about changing would be difficult because it affects people's personal lives. However, there is evidence to suggest that public, that public opinion, that political will to move on these things is increasing. Do I think that that political opinion is entirely informed of the costs that will come along with combating climate change? I do not because we have political science training and we're trained to believe that people don't know anything. <laughs> well, they might know it. And, and I think people are becoming more aware of like what the concrete steps are going to have to be, but nobody wants to think about it. And Thunberg actually said that, you know, she basically said, nobody wants to think about this. They would prefer to think of happy fictions and fairy tales about green jobs. They don't want to hear that this is a global planetary emergency that are, is, will kill billions of people conceivably uh, in the next hundred years if we don't act starting 30 years ago, <laughs> you know? Um, but the fact of the matter is when you ask people to, if, if you suddenly double the cost of energy, right? Um, you, even, even small taxes on energy, like we saw in France, uh, incite major protest movements, like uh, the Yellow Vest movement. After, the Jujons. Yeah, the Jujons. Um, and that was after, uh, president Emmanuel Macron, I think increased, uh, fuel taxes on people, uh, I think just, just points on the dollar or on the Euro. Um, right. That, that's, that's right. It started to affect people's actual lives and there was a very rough blowback, mm -hmm. but 
what you to go back to your analogy about war rationing it wasn't just that we know that the problem was external it was that the problem was serious and pressing mm -hmm. what we're talking about now is also climate change becoming a more serious and more pressing problem so sadly i believe that my hope for action on this rests in things getting worse so that they can then start to be dealt with. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I expect movement in the United States and globally. Um, and I expect that movement to accelerate and become more aggressive in the coming weeks, months, years, and decades. Uh, but the thing is, um, I don't think it's politically possible to stay underneath uh, 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming um, just uh, by using preventive measures alone at this point. And that gets us into things like uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere using as yet undeveloped technologies. That gets us into things like shooting aerosols into the upper atmosphere to block solar radiation, geoengineering. And what I mean, what this really gets us to is adaptation. Uh, so for instance, um, evacuating uh, low-lying islands and coastal areas, which you're starting to see in places like the Florida Keys, for instance, where Florida's government is actually buying up uh, residential properties on some of the Florida Keys, the islands um, uh, around the perimeter of Florida and demolishing those houses uh, because they're just too expensive to get rebuilt every time they flood, which is basically on a yearly basis now. Um, so prevention is one thing, right? And I think we're going to get better and better about prevention. Um, but to a certain extent, uh, it is too late. It is too late for pre prevention alone to do the job. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of R&D and it's gonna take a lot of international collaboration um, to try to bend the curve downward and preserve an international situation where it is even possible for countries to continue to cooperate. Okay, so, we're, so what you're talking about is we are now in the realm of uh, climate change mitigation, right? Correct. How are we going to handle this thing that is already starting to, that is already changing climate across the world? It's affecting people in, in coastal low-lying low areas. It's leading to massive weather changes, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff we've covered. Fine. We're in the age of mitigation. All right, Steve. So then my question is, what, what do we do going forward? What are the mitigating steps? Who's going to have to take them? Think, thinking politically, what's going to have to happen? Who, where is it going to have to start? Right. Um, well, I think it starts in the rich world, right? And the European Union already has a pretty good handle on this, right? Energy is already much more expensive in the European Union than it is in the United States. We're going to need to move in that direction and actually basically match speeds with the Europeans and even get in front of them in some ways, probably. Um, and uh, we're going to lag them. That's just the political reality. We're too far behind them, uh, but we can at least start moving in their direction. From there, uh, the battle is going to be, I think, won or lost in China and India because there are two and a half billion people in those countries uh, that are getting richer very, very quickly. And we are going to need to help them skip the super polluting part of economic development uh, based on burning coal and oil and help them go straight into solar, uh, new battery technology, um, geothermal, 
and stuff that we haven't even thought of yet, like eventually fusion, right? Uh, who who knows? When you say fusion, when you say fusion, you mean moving to nuclear power because it is cleaner, right? Yeah, and and not just like fission reactors, but actual fusion, uh, which we've been making slow progress on, and and could be ready for prime time in another couple decades, depending on how much we invest. Um, but we're going to have to basically give away this technology uh, to ensure that these newly wealthy people. Uh, and, you know, in India and China, and then eventually Africa and, and places like that um, are able to uh, continue to develop. Um, so we're going to have to meet them in the middle. Well, part of what you're also talking about is, okay, big countries, big countries like the US, China and India, growing, developing countries like China and India have to change the way that they operate. But this, do you think that this opens up a venue for cooperation between these countries. Yeah, I, I think I think it has to. I think there's going to have to be cooperation at every possible level. And the real risk to me is not whether or not um, we're going to be able to take steps on a national or local or state basis, or even an individual basis, you know, to scale back energy intensity and carbon intensity, like all that stuff is already happening. The question is whether we're going to be able to cooperate effectively internationally in a worsening international context, um, particularly um, if some of these scenarios, these like worst case scenarios become real and we have hundreds of millions of people flooding across borders, uh, then you get a really nasty sort of positive feedback loop whereby uh, countries close their borders, they stop trade, and uh, we enter sort of like a new international dark age of great power conflict and stuff like that. At that point, um, I think this becomes a positive feedback loop and it gets even harder to stop. The UN General Assembly is meeting. Uh, Greta Thunberg is perhaps the, the shining star of the moment in international politics. What should we look for what should we look for to happen immediately in the, in the near term? Cause you've talked a lot of like sort of medium and longer term answers. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thinking about those things, but what about in the short term? What should we look for? Uh, in the short term, I mean, over the course of the next year, uh, I think you're going to hear a lot more rhetoric in the United States about uh, taking climate more seriously. Right. We've already seen that uh, in the form of the democratic debates. Right. That's right. Um, and now he's dropped out of the race, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, but he ran exclusively on a climate change platform. Yes, our, our favorite candidate, Governor Jay Inslee. Um, yeah. He could have been better on television. Perhaps. That's, that's um, but he had the best climate program, right? He did. And his ideas, look, people talk about uh, campaigns of ideas. His ideas are still out there and some of them are being adopted by candidates that are still uh, still in the race. So. Sure. Call that, a, call that progress. Um, I think that what you're saying is right. I think that what, what the things to watch for, look, uh, you and I are both international relations people and international relations training tends, tends to focus on big countries, countries with a lot of power. And so uh, the things that I'm going to watch for uh, really are within the U.S. If there is enough blowback on climate change, the Trump administration doesn't have a very good record on climate change. We've touched on some of that. There's, in fact, a lot more there. But uh, I think what you're going to start to see is um, if there's going to be more domestic pushback on climate change against uh, 
against the Republican Party, frankly. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the, the Green New Deal, right, uh, which is great branding from a rising political star on the Democratic Party, uh, uh, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Um, is she Queens? Is that right? In New York? I think, she, I think she's Bronx and Queens. Bronx and Queens, yeah. Um, but she's come up with the Green New Deal, which has been, which other politicians have kind of taken and run with, right? And we're going to see more and more of that type of activity. Look, I think it's, it's, it's also should be said about the Green New Deal. It's not a policy mm-hmm. yet. It is mostly aspirations and the mm-hmm. policy part, the making of the political sausage, as it were, uh, is yet to be done. I think that when it comes to the U.S., this is what I'm looking for. When it comes to a place like China, China's a bit tougher. China is developing solar power uh, and they're investing in renewables. This is one of the popular stories that keeps coming out of China. But at the same time, as we talked about, they're developing and you know they're, they're trying to expand their global influence. They're trying to create infrastructure projects that will, that will go across Asia on land and around Asia uh, by, by sea. They've also now extended, that's called the, the Belt and Road Initiative. They've also now extended this uh, into what they're calling the Polar Silk Road, which is, uh, right, it's, it's not the best branding. <laughs> <laughs> Polar Silk doesn't sound good, nonetheless. Um, but part of it is that as, uh, as, uh, the, as the Arctic melts, there's going to be new exposure of sea lanes in the Arctic. This yeah. was actually the driving, uh, the driving thesis behind Trump's Greenland um, mm-hmm. uh, discussion a couple weeks back. Right. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who, sa- who has, I think, correctly identified that the Russians and the Chinese are trying to move into the Arctic, not only because of sea lanes opening up, but also because melting ice caps means that there's exposure to resources that haven't been dug out of the ground because they were under too much ice. That there's going to be competition in the Arctic, right? So, but but here's the thing: you just said competition, not cooperation, right? That's right. But this is what I'm saying about China: is this sort of uh, uneven development in terms of trying to be greener? You want more renewables, fine. But at the same time, if you're going to be digging more energy out of the ground, it's I'm going to be watching China to see how this goes. Yeah, it's a really delicate balance because even Xi Jinping, who, as we've said in the past, you know, has basically an imperial level of power within China um, and is his rule is basically unquestioned, has to keep the jobs coming. He has to keep uh, economic development flowing. He has to keep those uh, standards of living rising. Otherwise, even he is going to be in trouble and uh, the Chinese will rise up and kick the Communist Party out of power, even though like uh, they're not a democracy and, you know, there could be a, a, a revolution in China if, if Jinping is not careful. Right. So what we're talking about is here's the thing just to, again, to bring it back to the IR stuff when it comes to climate change, we're talking about a problem, the scope of which can upend our conceptions of what nations and even international uh, cooperation can uh, can conceive of. Right now, these are this is a problem on such a scope that it's one that has the potential to be bigger than anything else that the the globe has ever had that our species has ever had to deal with. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking about it a lot in the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, this is not going away, um, and I think it's only going to become 
a bigger and bigger topic of conversation. Um, so shall we leave it there? We shall. Awesome. All right. Till next week. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show. 